Hi everyone and welcome to Leukemia Chatters. I'm Charlotte, the Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. For our last podcast of 2022, I spoke to our CEO, Zach Pemberton-Whiteley. He is at an exciting annual event where we learn more about the latest care and treatment of leukemia patients. I grabbed him from across the pond to find out what's new and where leukemia care still have work to do in 2023 and beyond. Hi Zach, so pleased you could join us from the US today. Thanks for, for giving us a bit of your time. Hi Charlotte, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, um, as I just said, you are in America at the moment and you're there for uh, the ASH conference. So I wondered if you could just tell us a bit about what that was. Yeah, so ASH stands for American Society of Hematology. Um, Effectively, it's the biggest hematology conference of the year. All things to do with blood, whether that's blood cancers or not cancers at all. Um, Effectively, it's in America, but it's the global big conference where all the latest science, all the exciting stuff that's happened throughout the year and the stuff that's likely to be happening over the next couple of years, it's where we see the data for the first time and really understand what exciting new research has happened and what's going to happen for patients coming up in the future. And why do people, like patient groups, I suppose, go like yourself? What are you hoping to get from it? Well, there's quite a lot. So really there's accessing the latest science, trying to understand um, the data so that it informs all of the work we do at Leukemia Care. Um, Some of the groups we're involved in will actually be sharing evidence at that meeting. So there's some international survey work that's being presented. Leukemia Care worked with global charities to run uh, basically a global leukemia patient survey to really understand the experience of patients. And that's being presented at the meeting for the first time. And also everyone in the world of haematology will be there. It's a huge conference with tens of thousands of people. And it's an opportunity to meet with key contacts, key clinicians, and really understand the work they've been doing in the space and again use that work to inform leukemia care's work to make us as effective as possible yeah we're going to touch a little bit on some of that work that patient groups have been doing like you said uh, throughout our conversation today but i think you, you make a really good point about uh, groups like leukemia care being able to share what we know about patients so it becomes more of a, a two-way conversation between doctors and patient groups would you agree Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we tend to call it evidence-based advocacy. So a lot of the work we do at Leukemia Care is around patient advocacy. So being the voice of the patient community, trying to make sure the interests and views of leukemia patients are informed and involved when decisions are made. And those can be all kinds of decisions. And really, there's been a big trend across the charity sector around generating evidence of that and making sure all of the work we're doing is really, really informed by that evidence. Um, Sounds a little bit geeky but it really helps us influence and make sure our advocacy, our policy work is effective and as effective as possible when we're campaigning for those important issues. So what I wanted to really talk about today is a bit about some of those treatment advances over the last few years in um, leukemia. And obviously, ASH is where we learn a bit more. I'm not going to grill you on on what's been discussed at ASH, but I think it was a good opportunity for us to discuss generally what's changed over the last a few years or so. Um, one of the things I was thinking of was CAR-T therapy. It's been a hot topic for many, many years in haematology now. Um, why is that the case? What's so exciting about, about CAR-T therapy? Well, so CAR-T therapy, um, just in case anyone doesn't know, is chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. 
that's the last time we'll say it. We'll stick with CAR-T therapy from now on, don't worry. Um, and it's a really exciting treatment um, scientifically as well as what it actually might mean for patients in that, in essence, it's about teaching the immune system to recognize, fight, and then kill cancer cells, which is something we've been trying to do for a long time. Um, it's part of a type of treatments called cell and gene, um, and it's really genetic treatments effectively. So what happens with CAR T therapy is you take T cells out of someone's blood, you put them in a lab, you genetically engineer them, you put in a, what's called a viral vector, and then you put that T cell back in somebody's body. And that T cell can now recognize cancer cells and kill them. Um, and that's effectively how the immune system works normally is T cells recognizing and killing cells. But with cancer, the immune system doesn't recognize that cell. And that's when we have a problem. So this is all about teaching the immune system to operate in a way where it can recognize those cancer cells. And for CAR-T therapies, um, we're lucky that we're seeing them in the world of hematology before we see them in other areas of cancer because of the nature of the blood. Um, and so it's been really, really exciting. We first saw CAR-T cells used in humans over 10 years ago now. The first ever person to be treated with CAR-T and be successfully treated is now over 10 years in remission from that. So it's been really, really exciting. Um, at the moment and over the last few years, it's been really quite small numbers of people. Um, we're talking sort of 30 to 40 people per year in the UK. Um, and we're actually starting to see more treatments coming through. So from a scientific perspective, there's lots and lots of different CAR-T therapies in development. Um, and that holds a lot of promise for the future. Um, so it's really quite an exciting time at the moment. At the moment, we've got them just for acute lymphoblastic leukemia in people up to the age of 25 after they've had two or more previous treatments. But and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more in coming forward, but we're hoping to have a broader population that can use that treatment coming up soon. So maybe people over the age of 25 with ALL and looking even further ahead, potentially people with different forms of leukemia might be able to access these types of treatments relatively soon. Yeah, as well as um, it taking some time to sort of spread out into different people with different types of leukemia it's also been quite difficult for the nhs to sort of scale up the delivery of car t why why is that the case and so car t is a very very specialist treatment um and there's some very complex accreditation processes about which hospitals are able to deliver it so at the moment there's only nine hospitals across the uk that are licensed to deliver car t therapies um, for some people, that's not a problem because that's their normal treatment centres. But for a lot of people around the UK, that means there's quite a lot of travel involved in that period or potentially staying away from home. Um, it's actually one of the exciting things we've done this year at Leukemia Care is we launched a new service called CAR-T Away From Home, where we've partnered with a company called Delata, who run a series of hotel chains, um, to offer free accommodation to anybody who's having to stay away from home because of CAR-T. Um, and when you have the CAR-T infusion, there's a period of time where you need to stay relatively close to hospital, usually around a month, about an hour or less from the hospital. And so you can often stay in, in a hotel, have free access to that accommodation if you or a family member needs to stay nearby to the hospital during that CAR-T process. So hopefully that service is helping expand access to this treatment to anyone in the UK, not just those who live near to a CAR-T centre. 
Yeah, I think that shows that even though we have an NHS that in theory wants something is available, everybody should have access, that there are things outside of that process that affect your ability to access treatment. And it's, it's good that leukaemia care are able to support people in that way. Absolutely. I mean, one of the barriers to treatment we've talked about for many, many years is postcode lottery, the treatment you receive being different on the basis of what your postcode is. And absolutely, that should not be the case in a country like the UK. But it's not just about decisions about access to treatments. It's also about practically how you access them. Um, Obviously, we're well aware as a charity around the financial issues people face accessing um, travel costs to hospital backwards and forwards, not just travel, but also bills, Um, especially amongst the cost of living crisis. This is more of an issue than it's ever been before. Um, And Leukemia Care has for years provided financial grants. Um, And if you want to find out more about them, just search financial grants on Leukemia Care's website, really, really easy to access. But we've just launched something specifically new for the cost of living situation as well. Um, Leukemia Care, a partner with another charity called Leukemia UK, to offer specific one-off grants to help people at the moment, because financial reasons should not be a barrier to anybody accessing treatment. Um, and also is obviously a big impact of, as a result of a leukemia diagnosis and something we want to do and support people with. So we've talked about CAR-T, which is, you know, a very, very good sort of step change in the treatment of, of some leukemia types already. Particularly, you mentioned it's currently available for acute lymphoblastic leukemia patients under the age of 25. So acute leukemia patients, obviously, our aim uh, or clinicians' aims is to, to cure the leukemia. Um, but those sorts of treatments and similar ones like transplant are not available to all acute leukemia patients. Have we seen any sort of advances in those who are diagnosed later in life or have other illnesses that stop them having these really sort of quite intensive treatments? Is that a, is that a big unmet need in your opinion? Yeah, so I, I think exactly what you're saying, Charlotte, with the point around with acute leukemia, a lot of the treatments can be incredibly intense. Um, and at Leukemia Care, we very strongly believe that treatment choice options should not be determined on the basis of age. Age should not be the factor. Clinical frailty, though, which in many cases can be the same as age in the sense of people who generally, as people get older, they become less able to withstand or tolerate particular treatments um, is absolutely a big issue in terms of what treatment options might be available for them. Um, Like you said, with stem cell transplants, there's relatively small numbers of stem cell transplants take place in people over the age of 70. Now, 70 should not be a cutoff or a barrier. That shouldn't be the factor. But we do know that there's a need for different treatment options in people who are unfit for stem cell transplant. Um, And we've seen progress quite a lot recently in terms of new treatments coming through in acute leukemia for the first time in, if we go back um, more than a couple of years, there's been sort of 30 or 40 years without any advances in some forms of acute leukemia. And we're now seeing almost an influx of different treatment options coming through development, Um, some more generally, but things that are generally more tolerable. Um, So an example of that is there's a drug called azacitidine. There's an oral version of that that's coming through, and that's been specifically developed for people who are ineligible for stem cell transplants. Um, And that's really just one example of many different treatment options um, where we're starting to see those options improve. 
And in blood cancer, that's really important because obviously things like surgery aren't an option. So we rely very, very heavily on what treatments we get in the blood cancer space. Um, so it's been exciting to see the latest developments that are happening in this area. Yeah, uh, hopefully we can get them all approved on the NHS, which we'll come back to in a little bit. But first, I wanted to ask you, um, you're you're the chair of the international patient group that you hinted at earlier, the Acute Leukemia Advocates Network, or ALAN for short. And I know they've been doing some work about understanding what people want from treatments. So we talk a lot often about survival, but what about other things that make a difference to treatment options? Could you expand a little bit about uh, that work that you've been doing? or are hoping to do, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said before, generating evidence of what patients think, what patients want, what patients experience is something that's hugely important to help us advocate for particular things that are in the interest of patients. Um, and I think the thing you're touching on there is what we call a patient preference study. Um, so Alan is kicking off, has been working for most of this year, but at the beginning of next year is kicking off a patient preference study. Um, and this is a world leading thing. It's pretty much the first time a international charity has run a project like this um, across cancer. It's just really, really quite exciting. Um, and what this project does is it designs a questionnaire which presents people with a series of different choices to try and understand hypothetically what acute leukemia patients would decide in terms of treatments, what factors are most important to people. Because um, the reality of when you're making decisions about treatments is there's always a trade-off. It's a trade-off between how likely someone is to respond to a treatment how much the side effects are likely to be and the quality of life you'd experience living with that treatment. And in many cases, we don't have perfect treatments that have small side effects and good chances of response and long responses. It's often a trade-off between the two of those. And in many cases, on the topic we were talking about before, that's why people are unable to tolerate some of them because the side effects might be so severe. Um, so the point of this study is to investigate in a completely treatment agnostic way, look at what people would want from their treatment options. Um, at the moment, we're doing it first in relapse refractory. So after people have had a treatment, second line or future to try and understand what's happening there. Um, and really, this should provide very useful information to help um, regulators who decide what drugs are safe and licensed to use to help them make decisions, as well as help make decisions about what drugs we should fund in the UK, but also in other countries as well. Leukemia Care's informational webinars are about the topics that matter to you, whether that be the current news in COVID, the latest developments in treatment and much more. You can hear from patients and healthcare professionals alike, providing insight on all things leukaemia. Watching it live even lets you post questions directly to those panels. Find out when our next webinar is scheduled by heading on over to our social media or our website. Or to watch those you've already missed, check out our YouTube channel. So we've talked quite a lot already about acute leukaemia, which is obviously a really big unmet need. You talked there about the need to understand not just how we can make people live longer, but, you know, have treatments that um, actually meet their needs in terms of giving them choice as well, if possible. Um, but there are also types of leukaemia that, while treatable, are incurable. Um, for example, chronic myeloid leukaemia. And I wonder if you could say a bit about what's being under done to understand what, what those patients 
need and what they actually want from their care because on the face of it that sounds like a fairly good situation to be in for uh, in comparison to some cancers that are immediately life-threatening so what what work is being done by patient groups like us to to understand that properly so i think um chronic myeloid leukemia is a really really interesting area in the sense of you use the word incurable um, so there's actually quite a debate at the moment about what would a cure look like in CML. Um, so we've had now for over 20 years some very effective, very targeted treatments um, from imatinib through to other forms of TKIs, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We've had them for a long, long time now, and we have a choice of five or six of them to be used in different settings. Um and for some patients, what we've seen over the last few years is something called treatment-free remission, um, otherwise known as TFR. And what that means is people are able to stop taking this tablet, which otherwise is a daily tablet, um, sometimes once or twice a day, depending on the tablet. In TFR, you can stop taking that tablet and remain um, treatment-free, so you're not having any treatment, but the, the disease isn't coming back. Um, in some cases, it's undetectable, and in others, it's just remaining at very, very low levels and clinically is absolutely fine. Um, and what we hear from people in that TFR setting is that many people are able to live a relatively normal life. Um, but the debate here about cure is some would describe that as they are then cured from the CML because they haven't got CML, they're not receiving any treatment. But many others would say, well, I'm still being monitored. I still feel like a CML patient. Um, and there's been some really exciting work in this area over the last couple of years from a global organization called the CML Advocates Network that did some work around TFR, treatment-free, stopping, what that means for, patient, for patients, what's the experience like of going from a once-daily um, or twice daily in some cases, tablet to stopping treatment and still remaining treatment free. Um, and it, there's yeah, some really exciting work in that area, hugely promising. Um, one of the challenges we've got at the moment is not everybody able, is able to get to a point where they're able to consider trying TFR. Um, then you need to be in a certain clinical response. And not everybody, once they try stopping, will stay treatment-free. It's only around 50%, depending on the different studies that you rely on. So what we're really hoping, it, hoping is with either with new treatments or with a better understanding of existing treatments, that more people are able to remain treatment-free. Um, and there's lots of good reasons for that from a government health system perspective. That means we can avoid the cost of these very high costly drugs. From a patient perspective, obviously, that means you can avoid the side effects of going through some of these treatments. Um, and it really is, again, at the frontiers of cancer care in the sense that we hope that this kind of option, chronifying cancer, turning it into a chronic decision, in a chronic disease, gives us the hope of the kind of things we could do with other cancer types in the future. But there's still a lot more to be done in CML. We still need to work out how to fully cure CML. Even if you take TFR to mean cure, which, like I said, is very debatable, but even for those patients, there's lots of support needs still for many of them. And there's also the majority of patients aren't able to get there currently. So there's a lot more still to be done in the CML space. Yeah, like you say, I think it's one of the most common questions we, we get on CML because it's not accessible um, at, at first glance to patients always who can 
they'd be eligible for TFR. People talk about it on Facebook groups, etc. Um, but the eligibility is buried in the guidelines, and it's really important that people like us, like Akimia Care, share that information. And certainly, one of our more popular webinars. Um, so yeah, like you say, we've we've got a lot of support work needed there. I wanted to touch on combinations of treatments as well and I think we talk often about combining treatments as if it's a new thing but I think those who've had chemotherapy for leukemia will know they've had many cocktails of drugs but I think what's becoming quite new in leukemia although um, has been happening in things like myeloma and lymphoma for a long time is combining some of the new drugs really early on recent like uh, quite like soon after they've been discovered. So a good example maybe is ibrutinib and venetoclax for CLL, two drugs that are relatively new in the last 20 years off the top of my head. And they've already decided, clinical community have decided, let's try putting them together. Um, does that represent a good thing for patients, I suppose? I think, I think it says something about age there, Charlotte, in that ibrutinib and venetoclax have both come through in the last five years. Um, <laughs> but I think combinations of treatments is a really interesting area in the sense of um, why would you combine treatments in the first place is really the kind of core question here. Um, and the reason in many cases we're doing it is because we think clinically the treatment will be more effective if you put two of them together. So you might take what we would call a backbone. So that's an existing treatment option that you would use. And you might then rather than if you develop a new treatment, trying to use that treatment instead of, you add the two of them together in the hope that you can be more effective, in the hope we can improve treatments um, and give people better clinical outcomes, potentially better survival, more people responding to treatment, for example. But obviously, like a lot of things, it's a trade-off. Um, so when you put two drugs together, you'll get normally side effects from the different treatments um, and obviously the combined nature of some of those side effects can, can make them more difficult for people to tolerate. Um, so in many cases, it's about selecting careful combinations to try and understand um, when it makes sense, when the side effects are going to be tolerable for patients to do. But one of the other things, um, and particularly with the example you've shared there in terms of brutinib and venetoclax, both are used individually in CLL, and we're seeing the two of them put together in combinations. We're seeing each of those drug puts with other drugs in combinations as well. But the abrutinib and Etoclax combination could be really exciting because they're both very effective drugs individually, but they're also both very expensive drugs individually. So that's a big question for us to try and answer in the sense of in a country like the UK with the NHS, how we fund access to some of these drugs like those kind of combinations, not just that one, but there's many other combinations. Um, we've not had a lot of expensive combinations or new combinations come through in leukemia. Like you said, it's happened in other cancer types. And we're seeing a lot of those in developments, a lot of clinical trials. Um, so things that are presented at conferences like ASH, you see all of this science. And in the UK, we don't always get access to those things routinely on the NHS. And that's a big question for us to answer and a big piece of work that we are trying really hard at Leukemia Care to solve um, through our policy work, but also in other areas. Yeah, so obviously you've, we, we've run through very, very quickly today, but we have run through quite a few really exciting things and things that are not yet moving as fast as we'd like. So... Maybe you could uh, just touch on quickly now 
what the process is to to get a drug you know actually being used on the NHS in the UK and I appreciate it's complicated so <laughs> as best you can I guess. Yeah so I think I think in terms of the context I think there's a couple of things to say um, really importantly which is particularly given we're doing this conference in the context of ASH which is comparing between behind what's happening scientifically um, and again we see a lot of that in the US and what's happening in reality in places like the UK because um, I always like to say science doesn't mean anything unless that science reaches patients and that's where access to treatments is hugely important it's about what people actually receive in real life not what hypothetically they could do or that science tells us might be possible um, and particularly thinking from the UK and thinking really um, obviously there's some things that are available privately in the UK but for the majority here I'm going to focus on what is available on the NHS um, and the UK is not one country obviously there's various different parts of that um, and what that means is there are different processes for different parts of the UK um, so for England and Wales generally we have an organization called NICE that's the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence which I'm aware doesn't spell NICE um, but anyway that's for historical reasons in Scotland we have an organization called the SMC and that's the Scottish Medicines Consortium um, and then for Wales, there's also a separate organisation and the same for Northern Ireland, but I'm not really going to touch on those because their processes are quite specific and rarely used. Um, so NICE and SMC are the organisations that in some cases give guidance um, as to what treatment should be available on in the UK in the different NHS systems. But in practice, what it means is they make decisions about what is funded um, and they do so through going through an appraisal. Uh, it's called a health technology appraisal where they assess each drug for its use within the NHS. And they try and answer um, one major decision here, which is cost effectiveness. And what that means is, is this drug a good use of NHS resources? Effectively, is it good value for money? Um, and ethically, there's some quite interesting decisions there about what value you place on particular treatments. Um, do particular treatments have more or less value in particular settings, by which I mean for drugs for rare conditions, do they, are they any different from drugs from common conditions, drugs where diseases are very severe, or drugs where they're used in the end of life? Um, and all of this can get very... Um, again, geeky in the sense of you can get into some very kind of policy-heavy debates but effectively, these are the decisions that decide what drugs people affected by leukemia are able to access in the NHS. Um, and for a long time now, Leukemia Care has made a commitment that we get involved in every single leukemia-related appraisal at every single stage in every part of the UK. And we make sure that we represent the voice of patients. We work with our patient community we get them involved in the process, but we also really get into the policy geeky bits um, and make sure that people's views and interests are being represented when those decisions are being made. Um, because there's one thing, they're not being a drug available for someone's condition, but it's a far worse situation if there's a drug developed, but not available because it's not been funded. And we hear from patients how important that is. And that's why leukemia care dedicate so much time and resource to arguing for access to these treatments um, and trying to get as many of these made available on the NHS for as many people as possible. 
What are you planning to achieve this year? Does it include free-falling from 15,000 feet? Maybe flying on a zip wire is more your thing. Join Team LC this year, raising vital funds, as well as your pulse rate. We'll support you all the way in raising the money. The question is, are you brave enough to take on the challenge? Simply search online for Leukemia Care Zipwire or Leukemia Care Skydive to find out more. Just to touch on a, a couple of the uh, sort of specific challenges to this process you described. So uh, we talked earlier about combinations of drugs at a high price. Is that a specific challenge to this system that you describe? Yeah, so there's there's lots of issues that affect access to particularly cancer drugs, which are harder to get funding for. Um, more cancer drugs are generally turned down than non-cancer drugs, um, and there's some particular reasons for that. Um, combination treatments is one that you've particularly touched on, as you said there, um, and that's, like I said, adding two expensive drugs together can make it really difficult to make a case for why the NHS should fund some of these things. Um, I'll try not to go too much into the complexity because this gets very, very complicated, even for health economists. Um, but really, it's about adding to one expensive drug that's already being used. If you add another expensive drug to it, you usually extend the time that the first drug is used for, which increases the cost there and therefore makes it difficult to make a case for NHS resources being spent on the second drug. Um, and it's really something that needs to be solved. And there's a lot of work going on in the policy space to try and solve this and make sure that we have systems in place to enable us how to, to determine how we fund combination treatments, because it's a big problem coming down the pipeline for cancer and leukemia specifically in the next few years. Yeah. And um, this is very complicated and, and geeky, as you say, but I think there is a, a real um, hope and a coming together of lots of charities to try and address this at the moment. And, and um, for example, the Blood Cancer Alliance are looking at this and that is a, a membership organisation of 15 blood cancer charities. They published some work um, that specifically said that if we don't look at the process of getting drugs into people from the science um, we will have real problems in the number of blood cancer medicines that we have in the UK I don't know if you want to touch a little bit more on on that work what potential issues do we have if we don't address some of the challenges like those combinations of drugs um, and getting them through the process what what are the potential problems for blood cancer patients well, exactly as you say, we need to get the, the system working properly to ensure that blood cancer drugs can get through the system, can have positive decisions and have at least as good a chance as any other condition if, of getting approved. Um, so combination treatments is a particular problem in blood cancer and a particular problem for cancer. It's not unique, but we're more likely to see combination treatments in blood cancer than we are in other areas. Um, and like you said, the Blood Cancer Alliance has published some work in this area. Um, it's particularly topical at the moment because um, from a policy perspective, there's a big deal being negotiated at the moment. Um, so the industry, that is the pharmaceutical industry, and the government represented through the Department of Health and Social Care and NHS England, every five years negotiate a deal as to how we fund drugs in the UK. 
Um, and that deal is being negotiated next year in 2023. So the negotiations are ongoing. And what the Blood Cancer is Blood Cancer Alliance is doing is calling on both sides of that to solve the issue for combination medicines. It's really, really important that we get this solved and develop a fair process to ensure that blood cancer patients have got the same chance as any other condition to get access to treatments. And that really includes combination treatments. Um, it also includes a couple of other issues that are going on at the moment. So one of them is um, when drugs are used for multiple indications or multiple conditions. Um, we've got a problem at the moment with the system, um, something which is called multi-indication pricing effectively, where what that means is you can't use different prices for, for the drug in different indications or different settings or different conditions. And what that normally means or quite often means is a drug will be in the UK only used for one of those con two conditions, not both of them. Whereas in other countries, you might get the same drug used for very for different conditions because it works in different ways. Um, and in blood cancer, again, that's a particular problem because the nature of blood cancer means that some conditions can be linked. So you will see drugs that are used in CLL will also be used in other forms of lymphoma in many cases. Um, and what that means is we're seeing problems with access to treatments where we have one drug, but only for some patients, not, not having everybody having the opportunity to access that. And again, that's something that really, really needs to be solved as part of this negotiation, because we're only seeing more drugs, more and more drugs that are developed for multiple conditions. And we really need to make sure that blood cancer patients can access those. Um, some of the other issues that are going on, one of them is rarity. Um, so when you develop drugs for rare conditions like leukemias, so although leukemia is one of the more common form of cancer and blood cancer is as well, individually, each form of leukemia is a very rare condition and the numbers of patients who benefit from each drug is quite small. And what that means is at a global level when drugs are developed, the cost to develop drugs are usually fairly similar but the number of people you're going to be able to treat with it is much lower and it makes it more difficult for companies to develop drugs for rare conditions like leukemia. Um, over the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of work from governments to incentivize this with what they call orphan drug legislation. So they encourage the development of drugs for rare diseases. But in the UK, we've not seen the processes for appraising drugs keep up in the same way. We've seen processes for some very, very rare drugs um, some specialized technology processes called highly specialized technologies. But what we've not seen is a process for appraising rare drugs, just generally rare drugs, and how the system needs to be different for them. And there's quite a few reasons why that might be the case when you develop drugs for rare conditions. There's a lot more uncertainty in the data because the number of people you've trialed it on is much smaller. Um, and I don't mean uncertainty about whether they work or not. I don't mean clinical uncertainty. I mean uncertainty in the modeling in terms of the cost of treatments. And that creates barriers and means people aren't able to, in many cases, access drugs for rare conditions that they would if it was developed separately for a common condition instead. And again, that's something that the Blood Cancer Alliance is working really, really hard to try and solve and to campaign for and to make sure that patients are being listened to when that negotiation takes place. Thank you, Zach, for explaining all those very complicated issues. I think what it demonstrates is, is 
sort of I, I know there are a lot of patients out there who who come to us with you know they've done their own research which is fantastic but you can't always sort of apply what, what the, the science to um unfortunately the care in the uk um and there are a number of things we are working very hard on uh as leukemia care and with others to try and try and make that better so i hope um that really brings to life some of our our work for those listening today um zach thank you for your analysis um of where we're at with leukemia treatments it's been really interesting and We'll let you get back to the conference. I really hope that you find something useful there and that your presentation of um, patient views are well received. But thank you for your time. Thank you for having me, Charlotte. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline on 080 88 010 444. See you next month.